0: Welcome to this grand Burns Night special. We'll be talking all things Burns Night and regaling you with some words from the bard. In this special episode, I talked to Brian Kingsman, master blender at William Grant and Sons. Brian talks about his memories of Burns Night's past and despite my pressing him, does not give away the secret recipe for the special essence of drambuie.
2: 3 of us in the business now get together probably three or four times a year, and we recreate that essence. It's phenomenally strong, and basically a a small container of that will go on to make somewhere in the region of of half a million bottles of Drambuie.
0: I spoke to Simon Howie, arguably Scotland's most famous butcher, about how the humble haggis has become a staple in many households. We also discussed the thinking behind sending a haggis into space last year.
3: Remember the time back in 99 we stood night and day making haggis in the factory the lot of us on almost like shifts who's who's the sleepiest right you go home and come back and we kept going kept going we did something like thirty-three thousand haggis that month and we could have sold a lot more
0: and to bring us right up to 2022 Rob Gilmore from Flavourly Beer Company talks to us about haggis beer yep you heard right I'm pleased to say it's not haggis flavoured beer, rather a good accompaniment, but I'll let Rob fill you in on that. We also have some great audio from our Big Burns Night celebration last year. You'll hear from Alexander McCall Smith, Mark Thompson of Glenfiddich, who will address the haggis, and Outlander star Sam Heughan, who told us how he would be celebrating the Bard's birthday. We hope you enjoy this grand special. Slangeva. I'm now joined by Brian Kinsman, who is the master blender for William Grant and Sons. Um, hi, Brian. Hi there. Could you tell us about your sort of career so far and how you came to be in your current role?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Scarily, it's actually 25 years I've now been with William Grant and Sons. L- literally 25 years on the 1st of January. So I started as a chemist. Uh, came to work for William Grant in their laboratory at the Grain Distillery down in Girvan. And um, really, at that point, was very much looking at spirit quality from a chemistry perspective, but inevitably got involved in sensory, because clearly that's massively important for for whiskey. Uh, and I was just hugely fortunate, uh, round about the time I was in the lab, uh, David Stewart, who was the previous master blender, was probably in his mid-50s and... Uh, looking to try and get somebody to come and start working with him. So, you know, a whole lot of things fell together at the right time and and I got the chance to be David's successor. So I worked with him for, for about eight or nine years side by side and then took over as Master Blender in
0: 2009. Do you find, this, so like the sort of modern day Master Blenders, do you find it's quite a lot of chemistry and things, as you say, that's your background, as a, as opposed to people like David who were, you know, working from a very young age up to that role? Or do you, th- do you think it's always kind of been chemistry mixed with a kind of natural ability to be able to create these whiskies?
2: It's a good question. I think there's a sway towards chemistry. There's a sway towards almost the appreciation of the science the science was always there. It was probably just more distinctly different where the traditional master blender would have been focused more on the, the stock management, the obviously sensory, and the, the kind of management of how casts are used, which I, is what I still do. But there's definitely... The conversations I can have with the technical team, I guess, are just different because I'm doing them almost with a little memory of once being in that team and being aware of, of science. The thing I would always say, and I say to everybody, is sensory always wins out, though. So fundamentally, you know, it's whiskey's a, a, a natural living, breathing breathing thing where we're fundamentally how it noses and how it tastes is singularly the most important thing. And the science can help us, but it doesn't define it. So it's it's always about the nose and taste.
0: And what might people find surprising about your role?
2: P- probably a lot of the boring bits. Because it's one of those roles that it's when you tell somebody what you do, it's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And then you say, you know, I'll, I'll pull out the, the, the little facts and figures of, you know, I might nose 200 whiskies in a day, maybe more. Um, you know, you're trying everything from New Make Spirit all the way through to 50, 60, 70-year-old whiskies, And and you travel the world, and it all sounds amazing, but there is, like every job, it's phenomenally tedious spreadsheets and planning and, you know, looking ahead to seeing... Uh, I'm making a 12-year-old today, but I need to make sure I keep enough salt back for the 15, the 18, the 21, the 30. So there's an awful lot of easy maths, but, you know, just maths and planning and setting up things on documents and emails. So it's, it's a job that sounds very set and stare into a glass, which is obviously the image that we quite often portray. But the reality is there's an awful lot of just admin that goes behind it.
0: So for anyone that doesn't know, what whiskies do you work on and how do they all differ?
2: Uh, well, I'm very fortunate and I, and I must admit, I think I think at William Grant we might be fairly unique. We are, we're probably now a, what you might call a medium-sized company uh, in, in the global scale. But but really, we still behave like a small company because that's where we came from, small family-owned business that's been very successful. So I'm very fortunate that I get to work across the whole portfolio so I'm working on, for example, Grant's blended Scotch whisky, so, you know, big well-known brand. Clearly, Glenferry, Single Malt, Drambuy, Monkey Shoulder, so a whole range of Scotch whiskies. But then in the portfolio, we've also got Tullamore Dew Irish whisky. So you get that nice comparison between Scotch and Irish. We've then got a Canadian whisky. We've got Hudson Bourbon in the States. Um, and then a whole range of non-whisky products as well that I get involved in, in terms of French brandies, various rums, gins, white spirits and so on. So from a managing quality and almost understanding the differences between categories, I'm really fortunate that in the space of a day, I, I could go across six, seven, eight different spirit categories.
0: Do you try them all at the same time?
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, try, uh, try to manage that. But yeah, I mean, effectively, then everything, as you know, is pretty much done on nose. we do a little bit of tasting from time to time, uh, but pretty much nosing. But yeah, I I can I try and plan my day so that it's you almost build up. Djambeui is singularly the most pungent, the most sort of strongly aromatic product we do. And when I make the Djambeui essence, I really can't do any nosing for the rest of the day. So I try and plan the day so that you know you're you're almost building up in terms of intensity. And so if we're doing the Djambeui essence, ideally you want to do it late afternoon and then go home have a shower and get rid of the smell a little bit.
0: Yeah, that, so that leads me on to my next question. So to tell us about Jambu and what makes it different, because obviously it's a liqueur. So what is the Drambuie Essence?
2: Well, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. So it's <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, basically the Drambuie Essence, it's a secret that goes back. I mean, if you look at the kind of history of the brand, in theory, it goes all the way back to Bonnie Prince Charlie in the 1700s. But certainly, this sort of modern version of it goes back you know, 100 plus years that was then given to the McKinnon family. I've got a written down recipe we've got in a safe in and, and the office. Uh, we, we took over that recipe in 2014 when William Grant bought, bought the Jambuy brand. Three of us in the business now who we get together probably three or four times a year depending on, on exact volumes and we recreate that essence. And it's just that it's na- natural flavours and oils that we, we mix together. And it's phenomenally strong, and basically a, a small container of that will go on to make somewhere in the region of kind of half a million bottles of drambuie. So that sort of number. It's brilliant, it's, you know, because it's such a natural product. You know, heather honey, this secret essence, obviously blended Scotch whisky, a bit of saffron that gets added for colour, uh, and sugar because it's a liqueur. And you know, it's just a it's a really historic old Scottish brand.
0: And also, I mean, I've got experience of this. Friends who are not really particularly into whiskey or don't think they like whiskey or want to try it. It's quite a good kind of gateway because it is so sweet. But you get those flavours there. So if you, do you find that as well? It's quite good for people who are not quite sure about whiskey.
2: Hundred percent, yeah. I mean, it clearly is sweet. It's a very indulgent drink. It's, it's that it's got, it's got such a syrupy sweetness. But yeah, it, it's, it's got the whiskey cues, but they're rounded off because the sweetness itself rounds it off, and then the natural flavours that come in from the essence are. You can still tell you're drinking a whisky drink, but it's not got that big punch that sometimes whisky can be quite off-putting if, you, if you've never really drank it before.
0: So Burns Night is upon us. Do you celebrate? Do you have a big like, burn supper?
2: I used to play the pipes. I still technically do. I, th- I was really into it when I was young. The number of burn suppers I used to go to was colossal. You could do a dozen in a week because you'd turn up, you pipe the haggis in and so on. So I've always loved them. We actually had a wee practice run the other night in the house, and had The Kids were, I wouldn't say they were bowled over by it, but they were. My son's as he's sixteen, and he he was quite stoic. He's like, yeah, I need to eat this because I'm Scottish and I have to eat it. My daughter was nah, not really wanting it, so I'm not. I'm not sure we'll do one quite in that in that format. Um, but yeah, we we I always do something just because you know it's it's part of me. It's I've been doing it since I was a kid, really.
0: What whiskeys would you recommend for Burned Suffolk? Obviously, you've got the kind of quite spicy haggis and then the creamy mash and the nape's so is, What would you recommend for that? It's definitely
2: personal preference, but I tend to think Speyside-style whiskeys work well with haggis. I think the really big smoky ones almost, you get a bit of a kind of clash going on. So I, I would I would typically go for, if I was thinking of our whiskeys, something from the Glenfiddich range at the, you know, the sort of 12, 15, or maybe something like Monkey Shoulder if you want a bit more sweetness, or, of course, we've just mentioned here that, that does work as well. But I think, yeah, it's something on the sweeter end, side malts, liqueur, if exactly how you said it. If somebody doesn't naturally drink uh, whiskey, then it's, it's a really nice way in as well.
0: So this is part of the podcast all the time. It's the Desert Island Jams. So if you could only take three jams onto Desert Island, what would they be and why?
2: Well, three jams, when you try 200 a day, three's not really that much. And just for, quick, for reassurance, not drinking, obviously. So people always ask me what's my favorite whiskey, and and it's really hard. And the joke, obviously, is it's like choosing your favorite child, and it's a bit. It is a bit like that. It depends on the. You, you've always got one, but you don't really want to say. So my, Glenfiddich favorite would be eighteen year old, and that would I would definitely always have a Glenfiddich eighteen. Probably then Monkey Shoulder. Yeah, I think Monkey Shoulder is is a, It's so versatile, and it's done amazing stuff in the on, on trade, and it's probably opened up malt whisky, Scotch malt whisky to a whole new audience and I love it for that reason. And then Drambuie because Drambuie goes all the way back to my piping days. As a youngster, I you know, didn't really know anything about whisky or I certainly didn't know anything about Drambuie but it's, it's got a nice thread kind of through my life so that would definitely be one as well.
0: Were you thinking you were going to go into dentistry and you've ended up in whisky?
2: Yeah, so I was always wanting to be a chemist and I worked for a dental company in Dundee and we made... Dental materials, so basically we made false teeth and like the impression material you get when you go and get fillings and stuff. And so every day going to work smelled like you were going to the dentist, which was challenging, to say the least. I actually I really, really enjoyed it, but the, when the chance came up to, to move to William Grant, I thought, yeah, it seems a tiny bit more appealing.
0: Thank you very much.
4: This is a poem about Robert Burns. It's called Missing You Already. What's 225 years in any full-blooded scale of things? Not all that much, really. There are some who still feel, against all the literary evidence, that Homer sat down to the Iliad not all that long ago, or at least not so long that we've forgotten the gist of what he said about Windy Troy. Poets have a way of persisting long after their lyres have lost their strings and been put away in the cupboard. Their voices have a way of lingering, reminding us at unexpected times of why it was that we were initially so struck by what they had to say to us. You are certainly still there, as real as the day before yesterday, saying all those familiar things that seem every bit as important as they were when you first said them. Reminding us to be human first of all, and then if we can, to delight in our individual ways, in the ordinary doings of folk and the ways of nature. To look with your eyes and your humour, your passions too, at those around us. To share your vision of what it is that makes this life so precious, so amusing, and so poignant, all of that. We still need you, you know, and you might be surprised to hear just how deep and lasting that need has turned out to be. Especially now, when so much of what you wrote about seems a bit of a distant memory. Fellowship in some inn somewhere, a rural dance, time in the company of friends, things you put into song that we think we remember and that we'd like to experience again. Of course we can do that, with you as our companion, Robert Burns. The party is taking place, the warmth is there to be felt, the lights are on again. Give us your hand, here's ours. All Scotland, though a little quieter now, is a bit happier in your company, a bit wiser in the warmth of your words.
0: That was Alexandra McCall Smith reading a poem he wrote about Robert Burns. I'm now joined by Simon Howey of Simon Howie Butchers, who are very well known for their haggis. Hi Simon, how are you?
3: I'm very good. How are you?
0: Fine, thank you. Looking forward to Burns Night. I don't know if you are.
3: We always look forward to Burns Night. It's the best month of the year for a butcher.
0: (laughs) So obviously you're a very well-known business in Scotland, but how did it all start?
3: Well, the business began back in 1986 when I opened a small butcher shop in the village of Dunning, which is 10 miles west of Perth. I served my apprenticeship in a a wee shop in Perth. At the age of 19, i I decided I would give it a go myself. There was a small cooperative shop was for sale in the village at two and a half thousand pounds. So I splashed out, spent the same again fitting it out, and began on my own. So I stood in the shop for six months, day after day, on my own, and then my first employee joined in May '87, and business grew really steadily. We started to supply hotels and restaurants, and then bought another shop in Ochterarder and then one in Dunkeld. Then I went and bought the shop that I started in as an apprentice in Perth in 1996. So we had this nice little set of four shops running well. Each manager, each all the new staff could see there was a progression opportunity. So I got a, built up a really great core of staff, many of whom are still with me today. I've got employee number one, three, five, ten, fifteen. They're all still in the business today, 35 years later. So I've been really, really lucky with the caliber of people that I managed to entice into the business. After we got going as a a retail business, it became obvious that this idea of just continuing the number of shops in outlying areas wasn't really that sustainable because it's difficult to control things that are 50 miles away from you when you're working in a shop yourself. So I bought a farm next door to my family farm And I built a small factory in 1996. And that helped when butcher shops became licensed in the way that pubs and restaurants are licensed, butcher shops became licensed because of the food problem there was in the 90s. And um, that helped me to, if you like, try and be best in class. So that was what got us into having a factory and from having a factory we then ended up supplying many more hotels across the whole country and thinking that our model was to reduce our retail footprint and increase our hotel and restaurant business so that's what we did and up until the late 90s we focused predominantly on catering butchery and by that time we were down to two shops which we still have today so that was, that's the sort of genesis of the business.
0: You were an apprentice butcher. Was that kind of thing in your family? Yeah,
3: my dad was a farmer. He was a, he was a beef farmer and he had also a dairy as well. So he was a man who understood animal welfare and farming to a very, very fine degree. He was an excellent farmer, really loved it and enjoyed it. I probably watched him struggle as a, in, in comparison to many businessmen with that kind of asset base that he had. He never really got, uh, to use the expression, out of the bit. It was always a bit of a struggle financially to, to make the business successful. So it was always next year was going to be a good year. They didn't have terribly bad years. In fact, farming was arguably better in the 70s than it is today. But if you didn't have scale, it was difficult to generate cash. As a sideline, he began selling meat himself to bigger institutions like hospitals and schools and predominantly prisons, believe it or not. So he had the meat slaughtered and butchered and then sold into the these big establishments. So that was kind of where I saw the butchery process happening, not that we saw the slaughtering, but we saw the butchery happening in what were clean but fairly rudimentary premises in the farm. And that was allowed in those days, and and believe you me, it was very clean. But it's not something that would be allowed nowadays. And that was where I got the the bug for it. I liked it. I liked the the feel, the smell, the the whole thing just worked for me. So when when I left school, I decided that I wouldn't use my qualifications. I would just go and not that I had hugely many, but you know I had a, had a decent education, and I decided I wouldn't go to further education. I'd go and be an apprentice butcher. So I'm the first butcher in the family, but there has been a meat background, if you understand. My grandfather was a was more of a contractor and my father was really the first serious farmer, albeit they've had land for 100 years in the village.
0: Was haggis always something that you knew was like a good selling point for people like is it always something that's done quite well in terms of like butchery
3: if you're in the butcher trade in scotland you're involved with haggis it's really as simple as that it's like being owning a hotel or a pub and somebody says do you sell wines and spirits If you're going to be a credible butcher you've got to have a good haggis when i was serving my apprenticeship always believed that the haggis my boss has made in, in our shop in Perth was fantastic. I took that recipe when I began myself and that has worked well. When we bought the Perth shop back, or sorry, when we bought it in the first place in 1996, the owners by that time were a family called Robbie and Chris Singer. And Robbie was one of the most experienced people I've ever met in the meat trade. And he has been working with me since then, up until last year when he retired. And he's been a fantastic support to me and and my colleagues in terms of a technical basis and he he helped us develop the haggis product during our time late 90s about 99 i think it was uh, scottish enterprise said we would like you to go on a supplier development program with Sainsbury's who at that time were embracing what they called regionality so they wanted you to go to Yorkshire and get the best Yorkshire puddings and they wanted you come to Scotland and get the best haggis and the best cheese and the best whiskey or whatever it was so regionality they wanted you as a local consumer in a Sainsbury's in Edinburgh to feel that you were getting good local produce and the best way they felt to do that was to embrace a suite of good scottish suppliers that they could help develop and they'd recognized that a bunch of us were going to be very wet behind the ears and not that well organized and not that big but some of the things we could do would be a bit special or a bit different from what they could if you like deal with out of their head office in london so i went on that course and there were companies there like mcclellan's cheese and I think even walkers were there, uh, shortbread people who were big, Graham's Dairies, a number of you know really good family-owned businesses that were supplying the supermarkets, but some of them weren't in a big way. I was very fortunate to be looked after by the person who ran the scheme for Sainsbury's and he mentored me very well and said, look, what products do you have in your business that we could sell in Sainsbury's, which was the key to the whole thing? So we talked about products A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and, and one of the obvious ones was haggis that was going to be a, a standout product in the sense that there weren't that many people doing it and not many people in the supermarkets. And there was, believe it or not, not much in the way of branded haggis at that time. It was all own labels. So you could buy a Tesco haggis or a Sainsbury's haggis, but who, which were made for them by suppliers up and down the country. But there, there weren't many private brands at that time. None of our existing competitors were even in the supermarkets. So we, we started that. And then the first year, I mean, if you imagine that a really good going butcher shop in a town near you would sell, I'm going to say, during Burns Week, he might sell seven or 800 haggis. And that would be phenomenal. They said we'll sell thirty thousand in Scotland in January. So I only thought, no way, no way, you will never, because they only had fifteen shops at that time. And we said, well, okay, no, we'll do it. We'll we'll manage to make those. We'll get them. And so we. I can remember, in fact, a few of my colleagues today. I was speaking to them yesterday and this morning. We were talking about. Remember the time back in ninety nine? We stood night and day making haggis in the factory the lot of us on almost like shifts who's who's the sleepiest right you go home and come back and we kept going kept going we did something like thirty-three thousand haggis that month um and we could have sold a lot more so it let us understand what the opportunity of supplying supermarkets was really like they they even more so then than now were were super high streets you know the the, the aisle that they had was as good as five butcher shops in every store so by supplying to one customer you were getting access to like having 50 butcher shops of your own so that's what gave us a flavor for that and we thought well if we could do that with haggis what about black pudding what about beef olives what about ham um, shanks and what about bacon and black you know, and other products that's how the dna of our business moved across and went up into to supplying the supermarkets
0: Veganuary is becoming popular again as obviously we're in January but not many people know that your vegetarian haggis is also vegan is that right? Yeah
3: yeah so for, for us as a business we, we are now if we look at our whole suite of products that we sell to our customers the vegan and vegetarian options are really significant they're, they're a big part of what we do and we don't have any problem whatsoever as a butchery business in developing and improving all the different products that we have and we get some amazing feedback from not just vegetarians or vegans but from meat eaters who eat them as well and say it's a great option it's a- choice it's a great alternative to what we've been buying from me generally we know vegetarians and vegans are still a minority but they are by far much more vocal in a good and bad way you know if something's not right they'll be the quicker to tell you than a meat eater because they have less choice so they want to make sure that what they get is really good but they're also very very complimentary when something works that they've they've not had a certain sausage product for years because they they went vegetarian and then all of a sudden they can get something that reminds them of that and makes them feel like it did when they when they ate meat. Uh, there we get some great compliments with that. So our haggis volumes are growing and growing in in our you know lamb based haggis, but so are our vegetarian as well. So the whole category is going up quite steadily. There there just seems to be I don't know a tendency to to celebrate Burns much more now than there was twenty years ago.
0: And on the subject of burns, do you celebrate it and have a traditional burn supper?
3: We do. I mean, by burn supper, it's not quite the, the grand affair with bagpipes and uh, and you know, toast to the lasses, but we always have a burn supper, and some of the family or maybe a few close friends round, and we have some haggis and a few glasses of whiskey and some wine and some chat. And I'm a musician myself, so I play Scottish music, and quite often there's a bit of accordion music and singing round the table which is always a bit of a laugh after five whiskeys.
0: <laughs> any particular favourite whisky? Yeah,
3: I, I actually like Balvenie really well. I like some blends now, which I didn't always enjoy when I was was a bit younger. Uh, I actually enjoy Dewar's, really. It's not a whisky you get a lot of. Johnny Walker's all very good. I could give you maybe 15 or 20 favourites if that's a help.
0: Is there any particular whisky you enjoy with Haggis?
3: With Haggis, right, no, I don't think there is. I don't think there's one that, if you like, suits Haggis, I think it suits me. But um, as I say, some of the single malts from Speyside are, are my favourites and, and a few blends as well. But I don't think there's one that particularly matches haggis, no.
0: Um, and last year you sent a haggis into space, which was, <laughs> it was really good fun. Um, I don't yeah. know if that was the point, but it was, it was nice to see. Why did you do that? And how did it all come about?
3: Well, we've got an absolutely brilliant brand manager here who came up with the idea and at first, we sort of looked and said, mm-hmm, she's been smoking something. But you know what? It was banks for your bucks. We, did, we didn't We did spend... It wasn't absolutely millions of pounds to do. It was a bit of money, but it wasn't like some of the crazy marketing things you can do, which can soak up hundreds of thousands. It wasn't. And we got an absolute massive response for that, absolutely massive response from from that, from interviews up and down the country, America, different places, all kinds of interest um, from friends and, you know, a really good feel factor for the business. If we could repeat anything like that on on an annual basis, it would be fantastic for increasing the, the awareness of our brand and Haggis in general. And it's fair to say too, that we never, ever look upon, say, a competitor coming up with a good piece of branding or marketing for Burns we never see that as a negative for us or a bit of a downside in the sense that they may have stolen marks on us we try to be bigger than that because it's great for the product it's great for the industry and it's great for scottish food production and the more that we can increase the awareness of that and the integrity of that the better it is for all of us and you only need to look at the whiskey industry just as we were speaking there, they embrace each other. One brand looks upon the other as its supporter because the last thing they need is anything that, that makes Scotch whisky seem negative. So they, they like the fact that the other brands are very, very strong. It's like being in a strong family. And I I feel like that with the, many of the other good Scottish food producers.
0: You got interviews from America when you sent the haggis up to space. Do you think the ban haggis ban in America is likely to go anytime soon or is it? Is it just
3: there forever if i'm guessing i think i'll be a very old man before there's a lot of meat going from the uk to america i think that by nature they have a strong agricultural lobby the idea that food comes in from other countries to america is contrary to the whole american psyche i'm you know categorizing everyone in america in one basket and that's not fair but they're not naturally drawn towards buying Food products from other countries when they've got such a strong food background and food producer group themselves. Could haggis be made out there? You know, it wouldn't be stupid for us to go and set a production facility out in America and produce the product there using local product. Uh, it would be easy to do. Uh, it would be simple. But in terms of meat being sold from the UK to America. I think we're some way off from that. Well,
0: thank you very much. I just need to say have a good Burns night. Well,
3: are you going to be having a Burns supper?
0: Yeah, I'll be having a Burns supper with some friends and I'm really looking forward to it.
3: We're sort of lucky that Burns' birthday was 25th of January, not 25th of July. It's a bit of a winter sport, Burns suppers, isn't it? And having people round on a kind of cold winter's night, it feels more appropriate than it would be if we were sitting out in the garden having a Burns supper.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you very much.
3: Great. Nice to talk to you.
1: Fair for your honest, sonsy face Great chieftain of the puddin' race upon them I ye you tak your place tripe or therum Well, are ye worthy o' a grace As langs my airum. The groanin' trencher there ye you fill Your hardies like a distant hill Your pen would help to mend a mill in time o' need Whilst through your pores the dews distil Like amber bead His knife See rustic labour dicht And cut ye up ready slicht Trenching your gushing entrails Bricht like ony dicht And then, oh, what a glorious sicht Warum, reekin' rich And horn for horn they stretch and strive Deal tack the highmost on they drive Till other we swelt kites belive Are bent like drum And oh, good man, like to rive <laughs> We thank it, hums Is there that o'er his French ragout or olio would stow a sou, or fricassee would macer spew, we perfect scunner, look dun we sneering scornfy voo at sick dinner. Peer devil, see him o'er his trash, as feckless as a weathered rash, his spindle shank a gid whiplash, his nave a knit, through bloody floods or fields to dash, ugh, I want fit. But mark the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread, Clapping his Wally Neva blade, he'll mak it whistle, and legs and arums and hedge'll sned like taps a thistle. Ye powers, while mak mankind your care, and dish the out their bill a fair. Old Scotland wants nae stinking wear, the joupes and luggies. For if ye wish her grateful prayer, gi her a haggis.
0: was Mark Thompson, Brand Ambassador for Glenfiddich in Scotland, reciting the Address to a Haggis. I'm now joined by Bob Gilmore from Late. Hi Rob, how are you? Very good. How are you, Rosal? Fine, thank you. We're here to find out a little bit more about the fact that you guys have launched a Haggis beer, so can you tell me a bit about that?
5: We got an idea into our heads that we wanted to just celebrate something. I think just the whole the whole world that we're in right now, you just need to find reasons to go and celebrate things. And Burns Night seems like an excellent thing being a Scottish company and having the opportunity to partner with two other really top tier Scottish brands. It seems, right, this, this is a really logical thing to do. How could you produce a beer that really complimented Burns Night. So we've produced Haggis beer. That is us taking the spice mix that goes into McSween's Haggis top secret spice mix and using it to season a beer, to try and lift a beer up. The whole premise behind it is just trying to take the level of food and beer pairing and just push it a little bit forward and see, can we actually amplify the parts of beer that, that work really well with food? So that was what we were trying to do. We've finally managed to get our samples out ourselves and actually really happy with what we've managed to do.
0: You said you were two other Scottish businesses, so it was Coaltown House and McSween, is that right?
5: Yeah, that is right. So the haggis spice mix was from James McSween. He passed along pre-mixed haggis spices to us and we brewed the beer with Coaltown House. So it was quite exciting because Coaltown House, they're quite experimental and they have kind of a really good affinity with us. We like to uh, actually push the partners that we're working to produce innovative kind of engaging styles of beer. And there was less pushing with the team at Coulton and more almost keeping up with each other and just trying to to get a product out there that we both felt, right, we've we've actually pushed the boundaries of what we can do with beer here. but There's a long history of using spice in beer but this was kind of maybe not your traditional way to approach it where you have spices already for food so both teams working on this project on the brewing side of it were really excited and we had McSween's in the background kind of eagerly asking us right how are things going along how do you think it's going to come out I think everybody chipped in in terms of coming up with what the idea of what this product was going to be and it probably chopped and changed a little bit along the roadmap but everybody's come out of it excited and happy with what we've done.
0: How would you describe the taste? So obviously people might think, oh, I guess it's not, there's not meat, it's just spices. And what kind of beer would you say it is? How would you describe the taste to people? So
5: we haven't dry hopped it with a haggis, despite the fun that that would probably have been. <laughs> so with the spices, like the whole goal of doing that, we've, we've got some kind of inspiration from some of the people that we work with traditionally in flavourly anyway, where we've either used spices in some of our beers or the breweries that we partner with have talked to us about spices whole goal about using the spices is to take what is quite a like a mouth-filling beer and to lift that kind of flavor profile a little bit more and to kind of you know almost in the same way as like acidity in wine or even in food spices actually cut through quite thick dense flavors. So in this beer, we're using Scottish oats and Scottish malts. So you've got really rich, intense malt and kind of a really soft mouthfeel. That could be a bit clawing unless you chop and dice it up a little bit. And that's what the the Haggis Spices have done. They've actually kind of just like broken the beer open a little bit. So you have something that has this lovely kind of silky, soft mouthfeel to it. We've gone and kind of actually deliberately targeted slightly more earthy hops just to give us a little bit more of an interest. We want the beer to be more savory than sweet. And the the, the haggis spices, you, you get like this lovely kind of finish where you have like nice kind of pokey fresh spices kicking through on the, on, on the finish of the beer. Kind of puts you in a position where like in a really great hoppy beer, you would kind of have that last mouthful and you'd be like, oh, God, right, I can't wait for my next mouthful. And that's kind of what we've replicated, but rather than doing that through the use of hops, we've done it through the use of haggis spices.
0: Sounds good. Sounds really good, actually, um, although it is just at 10 in the morning, so... <laughs>
5: <laughs> I do have a can of it sat on my desk here, and I did at one point pick my coffee up and it looked suspiciously like a can of beer, and I was like, no, <laughs> it's half not yet.
0: For anyone wanting to try this for Burns Night, is it available just now to buy?
5: Yeah, so it is. It's available exclusively through Flavourly. It is on our website. It's in a couple of cases, so you can either buy it exclusively on its own. We have a couple of different case formats. We have like a 6, a 12, and a 24. You can also get it in a perfect case, so you can build your own case. And then finally, we've got a few pre-mixed cases showing off some of our other Scottish partners that we work with. So we work with kind of a good range of Scottish breweries. We brew exclusive beers with Loch Lomond. And then we have, we've brewed exclusive beers with other people in the past, like Black Isle as well. So we've got a range of products on there that if you want to get a few cans in to complement your haggis on Barnes & the cases are already there. They're just waiting to be bought. <laughs>
0: And are you yourself going to celebrate Burns with traditional Burns supper or, or anything like that? Or are you just going to have quite a lot of haggis beer?
5: I'm going to attempt some sort of balance in my life. <laughs> I will have a haggis. So obviously my accent might be giving it away. I'm not your traditional Scotsman. <laughs> I have always wanted to celebrate Burns night, but I get caught up in life and everything. And then I forget to do it. And then I get to the other side of Burns night. And I'm like, ah! Oh, i've done it again i've forgotten to do it so this year i now have haggis beer so I, I don't know if that's like a carrot to make me sit down and actually just do a burn supper at home here but i think so i think this year i'm going to have to do it otherwise it's going to be quite sad when i just yeah, sat and I drank haggis beer
0: <laughs> at least it's kind of doing something to, to mark it
5: yeah definitely i've i've contributed to to, to burn celebrations
0: <laughs> well thank you very much Rob.
5: you're more than welcome
0: Finally, here's Sam Huan from our last Burns celebration telling us about how he marks this special Scottish occasion.
6: Hi there, just want to wish everyone a very, very happy Burns night. Yes, indeed, it is Burns night. And um, obviously, it's a big celebration in Scotland, obviously, our National Bard, who was very prolific. Uh, it's a night of celebration, and as this is the Scotsman food and drink, I wanted to just mention exactly what I will be drinking and eating. Tonight, well, first of all, of course, it's got to be whiskey, water of life, the sasanach which is my whiskey. It is obviously delicious. I'm in love with this stuff. You can still get it in the UK to eat. Now, this is really interesting. I'm going to be having haggis. I've unwrapped them. I don't know which is which. These are the best haggis, I believe, in Scotland. They are McSween's. One is vegetarian, one is the real deal, the wee guy was running around the hills of Scotland earlier today, but um, he's now been wrapped up in one of these. I uh, was very happy to do that. But I don't know which is vegetarian and which isn't, so that's uh, going to be a surprise for later. Obviously, normally I would drink out of a quake if there was people here. There's no one here, so I'm on my own. I might as well drink straight out of the bottle. And of course, you need Jamie's Dirk to toast the haggis, to cut up the haggis. I will be toasting the haggis myself later tonight. So until then, slange Enjoy, happy Burns night, much love to you all.
0: Thanks to Ros Miller, whose wonderful music you heard on this episode. You can find more from him on Spotify. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co produced and hosted by me, Ros and Derskine, and co produced, edited, and mixed by Kelly Crichton.